Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Time to get into the teaching. Let's pray. I feel like I need to reset. Lord, uh, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to just be together and be in your presence and be with one another. Uh, We uh, don't take lightly the fact that each one of us is created in your image. And when we look into each other's faces, uh, we have potential to see the goodness and the greatness and the love of our creator. And so we thank you for the work that your Holy Spirit is constantly doing to shape us into that. And especially through this next uh, period of time, as we look at your word, uh, believing that your word is meant to shape us into that image, uh, we just ask that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us and uh, and our minds to comprehend those things that you're wanting to teach us in these next few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. We've been going through the Gospel of John. Uh, one of the challenges in the Gospel of John is the fact that Uh, The way that the author wrote the story of Jesus in in the Gospel of John has a lot of long stories, lots of dialogue. Uh, Sometimes he's recording Jesus' words, and it just goes on and on and on. And so often, what Jesus is saying is really importantly tied to the next thing, tied to the next thing, tied to the next thing. It makes it a bit of a challenge to teach through it, because... uh, it's hard to, in, in today's passage in particular, it's hard to get through it all in a reasonable amount of time. And it almost feels like I have to stop every four words and give some explanation. But, um, which, as you could imagine, would make for a super boring, non-engaging teaching. So, a difficult book to teach through. Um, anyhow, part of, I, well, I imagine in some ways, uh, like the story that we'll read today, or the part of the dialogue that we'll read today, it's almost like it's super zoomed in on one specific aspect of who Jesus is. It's probably a little bit like uh, putting together a puzzle. You know, those of you who like puzzles, you open up the box, you pull out the pieces, and each piece on its own is kind of a work of art, and yet each piece is only truly understood when it's put into the larger puzzle, and you see the place that it belongs. Uh, any of you ever do like a paint by number when you were a kid or maybe you're just an adult who wants to look like a better painter than you really are? Paint by number? Anyone? A few of you? Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit like that too. You know, you go through and you're coloring all the red and you fill in all the red and then you fill in all the blue and then, you know, you move on through the, the spectrum of colors and gradually the picture becomes apparent and, and, and in the end, you look like a real ace artist. It's, it's a great process. Um, the portrait of Jesus that's found in Scripture is a little bit like that, and particularly in the Gospel of John. We know that there's this big picture portrait where we can find Jesus from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. Um, and yet that portrait is also broken down into all of these small, tiny pictures a story here, an element of an Old Testament story there that is pointing to Jesus Christ. I I know the analogy that's used oftentimes is a mosaic, right? Like 
a big picture that's made up of all of these different fragmented small parts. Or if you've ever seen the, the uh, digital art that is a large picture comprised of all these teeny tiny photographs. And um, that's a little bit what the story or, or the mosaic of the Messiah is in Scripture. It's a little bit like that. And so um, oftentimes when we're looking at one of the small pieces, maybe things don't make sense or things seem to conflict with each other. Or it, just doesn't, it just doesn't really, like, what is going on here? It's easy to be skeptical. But I really think when we can begin to embrace the big picture with our minds, we begin to see an image of the Messiah that, in my mind, is one of the most compelling stories you know, ever told on planet Earth. So in John chapter 4, in this particular story, uh, last week we talked about Jesus healing a crippled man. And, and we talked about how in that healing, in that action, we know that there was more at stake, that Jesus was trying to do more than just restore someone's mobility. We talked about how Jesus was setting up the religious leaders in Judaism at the time. He's setting them up for an opportunity to reveal himself to them. Uh, healing the man is sort of like starting to paint the red, right, in the paint-by-number pictures. And then as we go through the process, Jesus begins to add more colors to it. He begins to teach the people, and now he's painting blue, and he begins to talk about himself and talk about who he is. And now he's painting purple, and you get in a few more layers, and then you see the big picture. Anyhow, we'll pick things up in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, remember Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, because he said this, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I've uh, referenced this, my father's always working verse, when I have maybe felt someone criticizing me for working too hard. And even if I haven't said it out loud, I've thought it in my own mind. Well, I'm just like Jesus. He's working all the time. Who's just like God? He's working all the time, right? But that's not the point that Jesus was trying to make to the religious leaders, right? Jesus wasn't trying to set up a verse that we could quote out of context to do away with God's command to Sabbath for all time. He was making a point to the religious leaders, not that we should always be working, but that God was his father. This is, why, this is one of the reasons why it's important to read Scripture in context, right? Because when you handpick something out, you can come away with a meaning that is entirely separated and divorced from what was intended to be communicated. What do the religious leaders get really upset about? That he's working all the time? No. That he's equating himself with God. That he's calling God his Father, making himself equal to God. This is a big deal for them. Sometimes you'll hear it said that Jesus, you know, if you go through and read the scriptures, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not true. If he hadn't claimed to be God, they wouldn't have killed him. When you read the scriptures, when you understand the full context of the gospel, you understand who it is that Jesus is claiming to be and what it was he was doing. You begin to understand, you know, why he died and maybe why he is such an important figure in our world today. So they're upset that he's saying this, and he gives them this answer in verse 19. He says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. This is that part where he's kind of going on and on. And 
your eyes might be trying to glaze over. Just hang in here with us. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. And yes, he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. If you're getting lost in the words and the repetition, the big point, the Father and the Son are working together in perfect unity. This is super important in a minute, so I want you to hold this idea in your head. The Father and the Son are working together in perfect unity. It says, just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to those whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Why is he saying all of this? Well, he's facing religious leaders who claim to honor the Father, claim to honor the Creator, and yet they are rejecting his Son. That's one point. But a point that I want you to take away from this today is a statement that he said about the Father entrusting the Son with judgment. Judgment, the right to decide what is right and wrong, was given to the Son by the Father. And then this idea that the Father sees honor to the Son as honor to himself, or he sees what, you know, what the Son has done as, as being done by him. This idea, again, of perfect unity. And so we have these two super important principles that we're holding in our mind. What's the first one? You're holding it, right? First one? Oh, my gosh. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll say it again just to help us remember. Point number one. The Father and the Son are working together in perfect unity. Point number two, the Father has entrusted the Son with judgment to decide what is right and what is wrong. Super important. Hold those two ideas in your mind. I know some of you were. Um, I heard some of you mumbling responses when I asked, and, and I know it's really putting you on the spot to have to shout these things out loud in a crowded room. So, well, a semi-crowded room. A half-full room? Yeah. If this was a boat, man, we'd be in trouble. I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> no one likes to sit here. It's the spit zone, maybe. All right. Uh, <laughs> Jesus continues with a few more phrases. I'm feeling a little pressed for time, so I'm going to move down to verse 26. This is the important part, or one of the important parts. It's all important, but this is the important part I want to talk about today. Uh, for as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This is a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself actually more than any other title. I mean, we're pretty accustomed to calling him the Messiah or Jesus Christ. Uh, but when Jesus was referring to himself in the scriptures, he used this title, Son of Man. And people will ask, what does that mean? And if you're reading the Gospels, you read it all the time. What is he referring to? Now, the, the phrase, son of man, is, it might not mean so much to us today, but to the people who were immersed in the culture of studying the scriptures, it was like a catchphrase that linked to certain points in the scriptures that they had. This phrase came from a vision that was given to the prophet Daniel, who'd lived hundreds of years before this, in Daniel chapter 7. This phrase, son of man, pops up. Daniel is a prophet. 
He's recording a dream that he has of all of these beasts that represent the oppressive empires of the ancient world. The violent kingdoms that men have set up in defiance of God's sovereignty as they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and decided to become judges for themselves of all the world. Now, because we always want to remember the context of something when we're approaching Scripture, even when we talk about Daniel chapter 7, what we should do is be holding other parts of Scripture in our minds as well. These kingdoms that Daniel's dreaming of, these beasts, are the results of a choice that was made ages before that in a garden. Adam and Eve make a choice to eat the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had made this world and he created humanity last. And in this world, humanity was a lot like the other life that God created, the animals and the, the fish and the, you know, the, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And yet, humanity is also different than these animals. All the animals have God's breath inside of them, but humanity has been created in God's image. And we have a different purpose in creation. We're supposed to be image bearers of God, doing nothing by ourselves, but through this relational connection with God, humanity was created to rule over all of creation, to be ambassadors of God, the Creator's rule and reign in this world. Instead, Adam and Eve are tempted by one of the animals, a serpent, to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they, they reach out and they grab this opportunity to judge good and evil for themselves, rather than receiving the mandate that God had given them to rule with him. Their choice leads to them being cast out of the garden and into the wilderness. And then something happens to them outside of the garden. These image bearers, who were supposed to be different than the wild animals, than the beasts, become rather beastly in how they treat each other. Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, murders his brother. And very quickly, we find humanity living like wild animals, following the beastly impulses of their fallen humanity to sow and reap violence and oppression and brokenness for generation after generation. It begins with Adam and Eve's first son murdering his brother. It culminates in these violent and oppressive empires that we saw in the ancient world. But when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God knew that this would happen to humanity, and he inserted a promise into that being cast out. These are the words that he says to Eve in Genesis 3.15. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God is talking to Eve about a descendant, a son of humanity, who is going to, instead of being willingly complicit in the serpent's rebellion, is going to be at odds with the serpent, is going to not fall under the serpent, but is going to fight against the serpent. He's going to fight against this rebellion, and God prophesies that he is going to overcome the serpent even as he's wounded by the serpent. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day have not forgotten about God's promise in Genesis chapter 3. They're watching for this son of Eve, this son of humanity. They're looking for this deliverer. They're looking for someone to rise up and, and 
deliver them from the serpent and the lies. And so throughout history, God, a history of the Jewish people, but throughout their history, which includes God delivering them from slavery, God setting them up as a nation. It includes them not being faithful to God, constantly falling back into sin. It includes God giving them a land and commanding them to cultivate it and to create a garden where God's goodness would be you know, shared with the world. And it involves them taking the land and poisoning it with violence as they murder and kill one another. Uh, in this history, the, the, the leaders of Israel, the, the Jewish leaders and, and teachers, have in the back of their minds this idea that we are searching for a deliverer to come out. When's that deliverer going to come? When is the serpent's lie going to be undone? Who is going to get this right? And in this moment in Israel's history of darkest oppression, when the nation's exiled in Babylon, they're not even in the land anymore, Daniel has this dream about beasts that are ravaging the earth, taking their own turns to rule and to oppress, and each one that comes up seems a little worse than the last. Each one is growing the human rebellion against God, and each one is spreading evil and violence across the earth. And then God intervenes in this dream. And Daniel writes, As I looked, the thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And as you read on the next few verses, detail the beasts being conquered. And on the backdrop of how the Hebrews understood the world, there's this idea, finally, the beasts are conquered. Finally, what was done by the serpent is being undone. And as the dust of that battle settles, Daniel catches a glimpse of who this overcomer is for the first time. Who is the one who conquers the beast? With the the beast conquered, Daniel records in verse 13 what he sees next. He says, In a vision in the night I looked, And there before me was one like the Son of Man. The Aramaic was Bar and Nash. You remember from our series on the disciples, Bar is like son. So you have the disciple Bartholomew, who was the son of Tholomew. And and Jesus mentions uh, to Peter, he calls him Simon, Bar-Jonah. Simon's father was Jonah. He had blind Bartimaeus. Who was his dad? Timaeus. Bartimaeus. Timaeus, right? You guys are getting it. This is great. We're geniuses. So this word, bar and nash. Nash was an Aramaic word that means man. So the son of man. There is one, the son of man, who's coming with the clouds of heaven. And this man, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all the nations and the peoples of every language worshipped him. Daniel has this vision, the dust settles, and there is standing this man who has overcome the beasts. And this man is carried on the clouds of heaven into the presence of the Almighty, and the Almighty exalts him, gives him all authority and glory and sovereign power, and the nations and the people are worshiping him. Who's worshiped in this world? God's, right? So this man is a man, but he's also worshiped by all the men, so he's a divine being. 
Then Daniel writes, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is the deliverer who overcomes humanity's failure. And as we are beginning to get the bigger picture of who the Son of Man is, this Son of Man is not just the Son of Eve or a descendant of Eve, but he is also a divine being. Through some mystery, this divine being comes in human form and overcomes, undoes everything that the beasts had accomplished. What was man's failure? The first failure was stepping out of unity with God, right? Created to rule and reign with God. The serpent comes and tempts. They suddenly are having a conversation about God as if he's not there. And humanity steps out of fellowship with God, makes their own decision, and eats the fruit and, and uh, steps away. That is undone through the mission of the Son of Man. What did Jesus say? Very truly, I tell you, the Son cannot do anything by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Perfect unity. Humanity grasped judgment for themselves. We're going to decide what's right and wrong. We're going to kill who we feel should be killed. We're going to take what we feel is ours. That's undone in the Son of Man. Jesus grasps nothing for himself. Rather, the Father has entrusted him with all judgment has given him judgment. Generation after generation, humanity repeats the mistakes of their fathers. They surrender to the beast. They, 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 they choose self. They choose murdering and, and pillaging and, and stealing and, and lying. You know, humanity has done it all. And yet all of that is undone in Jesus Christ as well. Jesus is the son of man, the one who conquered the beast in Daniel's vision. And as you read the story of the Gospels, we know he's tempted by the beasts, right? He's tempted by these lower human animalistic impulses. He's tempted by those things, and yet we know he never sinned a single time. He never surrendered to that. He never gave in to the lies about self-preservation or self-elevation or self-entitlement. Rather, he empties himself. He submits himself to the Father. He surrenders to death, even death on a cross, he enters death itself, and he overcomes it all with his divine life. And if you're the type of person who's familiar with the story of Scripture, and you've been reading it from beginning to end, when Jesus shows up on the scene, in your heart, you're screaming for joy. Finally, here is the one who undoes all that was wrong in the world. Finally, here's the one who gets it right. Finally, here's the one that was spoken about ages ago in the garden, was dreamed about ages ago by the prophet Daniel. Here is the one before us right now who changes everything. The cycle's broken, and there's a new way for humanity to live that's finally opened up. It's like in John chapter 5, Jesus is trying to help these Jewish leaders step back just a little bit from their preconceived notions about who the Messiah would be and what he would look like, step back a little bit and see the big picture. Now, if you know the story, you know that they missed the big picture. But one of the cool things about the scriptures is that we know they were written at a specific time for a specific people, 
And that has a lot to do with how they read to us. And we also know that they were written for us. And so even though the religious leaders missed out on who Jesus was or Jesus is back in the day and in the story of John 5, we have hope because today we have a chance to get it right. Jesus said to the religious leaders in verse 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They'll not be judged, but they've crossed over from death to life. I love that idea of crossing over from death to life. This idea of stepping out of the wilderness and crossing over back into the garden. Out of living in a hostile world where we're ruled by our animal instincts and back into humanity, who we were created to be. This is the work that God is doing in Jesus Christ, restoring humanity to be human, to be something more than the animals around us. The record of the Gospels, again, indicate that many religious leaders miss the boat on this. But the good news is today we don't have to. We ourselves are invited to take a step back and embrace the full picture of who Jesus is, to soak it all in. Who is it who would hear the words that Jesus says today and would believe them? Who is it who would hear the story of the gospel and believe it? Allow it to begin to shape who they are and how they interact with the world around them. Who is it who would hear this invitation from Jesus to cross over from death into life, to, to into this new way of living as a human being and be ready to partner with God as he establishes his kingdom, his rule, and his reign here on earth. To escape the wilderness and be invited to come in and cultivate the garden. To tame the beastliness inside of us and to live as children of God. Lord Jesus, we hear your words today. And we want to be people who choose to believe them and obey them and be transformed by them. We invite your Holy Spirit to work inside each one of our hearts and tame the wildness inside of us. Show us in those moments when we are uh, not acting human, not behaving human. Um, especially in, in the coming week as we just believe we're called by you to be ambassadors, to image you into our community. Uh, really help us, Lord. We want to do that well. We pray that when people see us, they would see the face of God. When they communicate with us, they would hear communicated to them the truth of who the Creator is and, and your love for them and, uh, and the truth of, of all that you're inviting them into. Um, use us to proclaim your word this week. And we just pray that people would hear and believe and that they would, they would themselves cross over into the beautiful kingdom that you're building. In Jesus' name. Amen.